you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as I'm joined by critics Leo Lowenstein and Claudia Puig. Claudia is the president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and the program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. We begin with The Empire of Light, starring the always wonderful Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward. The film is written and directed by Sam Mendes. Claudia, what do you think of Empire of Light? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, Olivia Coleman is always wonderful. Can do no uh, wrong. She can do no wrong, yes. Um, and because of that, I wish this had been a better film because it, you know, she deserves the best. Um, and it's and Michael Ward is also really good in it. Toby Jones, um, of course, Colin Firth. It has a stellar cast. There's a sense of melancholy to this film. Um, it's beautifully shot by Roger Deakins. It feels like a farewell to something, and it kind of is a farewell to maybe the whole cinematic, you know, uh, movie going experience. Set in an English uh, seaside town? Yes, an English seaside town, I think on the south coast. Um, And... It's it was this once you know movie palace and it's still pretty nice. It's in the early '80s. It's during um, Margaret Thatcher's time, and you know the country is also going through all this violence with skinheads and um, there's racism galore. And so that's the backdrop. Um, it's beautifully shot by Roger Deakins. You feel that you know you can't get any better than Roger Deakins either. Um, the problem is it's just muddled by taking on too much. I feel like she plays a person who is um, has some mental health issues, and then there's kind of a romance that with her and, and this younger uh, worker at the at the theater. And then there's you know he's black, and so there's a lot of racism that he has to deal with. There's social issues. Then there's uh, Colin Firth who plays this horrible, philandering, lascivious old guy who who's the manager of the theater. And there's just a lot going on, and it doesn't always cohere. There are moments that I really, I mean, I was always caught up in it, but there are moments that I felt like this this could be really great, but it just kind of went off. Sounds in kind it. of fragmented. It's a little fragmented and meandering. Yes. Yeah. What do you think, Lael? Oh, I think I I agree mostly with Claudia as I often do. Uh, the the film is sort of bathed in nostalgia. There's this gorgeous kind of glow uh, about the the town and the cinema, this beautiful old cinema, the Empire, um, and you know. Coleman as this taciturn, very shy, very kind of withdrawn manager of the theater, the t- the ticket taker, uh, is sort of brought out of her shell a little bit by Michael Ward, who is just sort of terrific as this young guy who comes to work there. There's despite a generational difference and differences in background, they come together in a way and they do sort of kind of connect. They find this connection. And of course, you know, she she heals through knowing him until she doesn't. Uh, she's like this broke this bird with a broken wing and there's a whole scene where he fixes a bird's broken wing. And of course that's a metaphor for what he does with her, that he kind of heals her. And then when he kind of abruptly ends their relationship, which has has gone beyond friendship, she kind of falls apart. And uh, we learn then that there's much more going on in her background than we ever knew. That, of course, he, as a young black man, is dealing with much more racism and and, and, uh, abuse than she could have ever known. So it's really, in a way, about what we don't know about people, what we don't, what we what we don't always know people as well as we think we do. That's sort of one of the themes. There's that against the background of racism, against the background of sort of this early 80s nostalgia. And then there's also the fact that this is a love letter to cinema. It it has a, a few of the lines are actually almost exactly identical to the Fablemans when they're talking about just what what a what a strip of film is, you know, what what you know, it's it's 24 frames, 24 different pictures in every second. And that's that's a line that's almost identical, um, not unlike the Fablemans, which also had some problems. I think uh, both are love letters to cinema, but this could have been so much better. On the other hand, I did love Coleman and I could listen to her 
read the phone. <laughs> that is so true. You know, I kept thinking of, uh, I wasn't sure, I felt like she was an enigma, kind mm. of. And I wasn't sure what I was supposed to want for her. Obviously, better mental health care. Um, but it was like, you know, somehow she goes into a movie theater and, and that's supposed to cure her problems. And it reminded me of like Silver Linings Playbook, mm. where you dance your bipolar away. It's, you know, it kind of simplifies a much more complex It does. Problem. It does. She has one scene that is so kind of cringe-worthily horrifying, but also kind of magnificent in its in the way she plays it. It's almost worth seeing just for that scene. She just so throws herself into everything. everything. She, she does. Yeah. It feels like nothing is held back in her performance. I think that's right. And you have the feeling that I, I had the feeling that her emotions are very close to the surface, and she can access she can access her emotions so. Easily, which I think is what makes for a great a great actor in many ways. What a, what a she gift. is fantastic. Um, and for Sam Mendes, the writer and director of Empire of Light, the film we're talking about right now, his previous film was 1917, which had very strong reviews. American Beauty, going back you know many many years uh, ago as well, in uh, a couple of the Bond films, well. So Sam Mendes is the writer and director. He of wrote Empire this just for Light. her, by the way. Oh, he did. Oh, I didn't oh, wow. know that. That's yeah. so yeah. Well, and I mean, just getting to work with him, you know, what it would have get for everybody. A lot of talented people on yeah. Empire of Light. It's rated R. It's in wide release. Emancipation is directed by Antoine Fuqua, who uh, did the absolutely wonderful uh, series legacy about the L.A. Lakers that's streaming on, on Showtime. Emancipation is written by William N. Collage. Will Smith stars. Leo, what would you think? This was quite a strong film. It's uh, a true story of an escaped slave named Peter who uh, runs away from a, uh, a a plantation in Louisiana, goes through swamps and forests, and uh, and has an amazing, incredible journey where he has to fight off uh, villains, both human and animal and uh, weather and so forth. And he eventually joins the army. Um, it's really, really beautifully shot. It has a sort of desaturated uh, look. It's almost black and white, but not quite. There's little bits of color. So it it has this feeling of you're looking at not just old, you know, video footage if there or, or actual film footage if there was, but but these photographs that we've seen from the Civil War period, they really seem come to life. Smith is almost unrecognizable in this role. He's he's visibly transformed. He's he's very very good. He speaks in a Haitian accent. Uh, he's born in Haiti, and he's he's ripped away from his family and sent to build a railroad and work on plantations and so forth. And it's a it's a heart it's it's a horrifying story, of course, a true chapter of American history. And it's it nothing is really spared. Fuqua, of course, also directed Training Day, yeah. one of my favorite films. You know, and I was pleased just you know to put my critic hat on and be able to appreciate Smith as an actor and sort of forget. All the other stuff. That yeah, and you happened. were able to push that. It out, took a it minute. Like. I had to, yeah. you know, when I when I when I thought about watching it, I thought, okay, I need to remember Will Smith is a very fine actor, and let's 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 give this a chance. And I did. So, you know, let's let's give him a chance. It's an excellent film and a really important story about slavery and a a, a true person. Um, apparently, Larry, the photograph of Peter that was taken, which we do see later in the film, of his bare back, which is ripped and scarred and wounded from whipping. Um, was the thing that convinced many abolitionists that their cause was just. All right, Emancipation, uh, the historical drama starring Will Smith. Antoine Fuqua is the director of the film. It's unrated. It's in wide theatrical release and streaming on Apple TV+. The Whale stars Brendan Fraser as a morbidly obese, reclusive English teacher. Darren Aronofsky is the director. Samuel D. Hunter adapted his own play of a decade ago, The Whale. Claudia? Yeah, the fact that this is adapted from a play um, kind of dogs this film in a way or... or um, closes it down a little bit. Um, so it, it can feel at times very definitely stagey 
and sometimes overwrought, um, sort of melodramatic. But it is a really heartbreaking emotional journey. And Brendan Fraser gives, you know, this incredibly raw and brave performance that is easily the best of his career. Um, and so it's worth seeing, you know, just for his performance. That's that is completely the reason to see it. And people sometimes forget he was very good in Gods and Monsters. He was fantastic in Gods and, and Monsters. And he, yeah. He's a very strong actor. Yeah, he's not just George of the Jungle or the Mummy or, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so and he, you know, he just he taps into this d- deep um, well of compassion for this character, and you feel that the character he plays is this is Charlie. He's a English teacher, uh, college teacher. Does all his classes on Zoom because he doesn't want people to see him because he weighs six hundred pounds and he's ashamed of that. He's whip smart. He's tender hearted. He has this wry sense of humor. Um, he's really terrific in this role. He's in this cluttered apartment in Idaho through the whole thing. And you start to feel, I mean, it's, we're meant to feel claustrophobic and we do, um, you know, we feel his suffering. It's both physical suffering and, and sort of existential and spiritual torment. Um, and, um, so it all takes place in this apartment. The, one of the issues is, you know, in order for people to interact with him, they have to come to him. So there's constant knocking on the door. Every 15 minutes, there's somebody coming over. It's like you, you at first you're thinking, well, who has that many people coming over all the time? Um, you know, especially for somebody who's homebound and a loner. So first it's a pizza person. Then it's his it's earnest, young kind of missionary proselytizing who's quite good, Ty Simpkins. Um, then it's his furious teenage daughter from whom he's estranged, Sadie Sink. And then it's his ex-wife, played by Samantha Morton. And, oh, and then there's his friend, who also functions as kind of a caretaker, played by Hong Chow. And she's great. Um, it almost feels like, you know, there's been so much attention on his comeback that it almost, whether the movie is good or not, is almost beside the point because it's all about his performance and it's about his his comeback. Um, and... You know, he went through a lot, and personally, he's he had kind of a career stasis, and then he there was a sexual assault that he went through, and he came forward with that, and so this is a resurgence, and I think where everybody's cheering for him too. Um, uh, so I, you know, I found this as a character drama. I was I was caught up in it. It did get melodramatic, um, but um, I thought it was well written. Um, you know, there are people have been brought bringing up the whole issue of like fat phobia and whether it sort of fetishizes it and makes it, turns him into, you know, a, a cartoonish character or a monster. Yeah, what do you think about that? I, I didn't think that was. You know, I think he brought so much gravitas to the role that that it, it, it skirts that. There, you know, there. I guess there's an argument to be made for why not just cast a, a obese person as opposed to, you know, a heavy set guy who is just wearing a 300 pound fat suit. But he's playing someone who's 600 pounds. And, yes, um, it's hard to find it, actors that, that weigh that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and certainly experienced ones. Right, yeah. ones that could, you know, draw that level of of depth. So. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think it's an interesting discussion, but I feel that like he did a wonderful job. We're talking about The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Lael? He did do a terrific job. And, you know, as Claudia pointed out, there has been this discussion of, you know, whether it would have been more appropriate to have someone larger play the role or, you know, who, who personally had uh, morbid obesity. But the search for an actor, I believe, took Darren Aronofsky 10 years or more from the time that he optioned this play and was interested in uh, pursuing it as a film. Um, I thought Fraser was excellent. He was, by a mile, the best part of this film. Um, he does bring gravitas. He brings a great deal of, of um, thoughtfulness to it. And if you think about Fraser, the actor, not just his body of work, but his body specifically, it's been such an uh, instrument of transformation for him, looking at George of the Jungle when he had to get into this unbelievably ripped shape to others, other roles, you know, where he maybe resembled more his, himself, Gods and Monsters and uh, School Ties, I think, did he start with that? That was maybe a long time ago. Uh, but he, you know, he's had The Mummy, of course, very well known for that. He's had, he's been hot, he's been cold, he's been ripped, he's been not. This is sort of a great summation, it's a great capstone of, of his his career and a great summing up. And I think he'll be getting a lot, a lot of awards attention for this. The problem I had with the film was 
everything else. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, it felt incredibly staged to me. It felt very theatrical. The opening of the door, I didn't know it was based on a play. I just felt like I was watching a play on screen. I didn't feel that Aronofsky really opened it up enough to make it cinematic. I didn't particularly care for the daughter's performance. Um, I did like Hong Chao, but I felt like, you know, just a, another a little petty pet peeve here. I've taught classes before. He's a teacher. He teaches. I, I, I did like, by the way, the fact that it opens with a Zoom class. You see everyone else's screen illuminated except his is dark. But he uses the word amazing over and over and over again, describing his daughter, describing her work, describing an experience. I thought, gosh, why not come up with a synonym? You're an English teacher. Very <laughs> <laughs> good point. The Whale is rated R, starring Brendan Fraser, directed by Darren Aronofsky, Samuel D. Hunter, adapted it from his 2012 play, The Whale. It's in select theaters. Coming up, we'll hear about the French romantic drama One Fine Morning and the documentary Second Chance. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for L.A.S. comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on KPCC. Larry Mantle joined by critics Claudia Puig and Leo Lowenstein. Up next is the French romantic drama One Fine Morning, starring Lea Sadu. The film is written and directed by Mia Hansen Love. Leo. This is a, a very moving, uh, very emotionally honest film that I, I'm very, very fond of. So Lea Sadu plays Sandra, a woman who's caring for her aging father who is imminently on the decline. He has a neurodegenerative disease. She has a young daughter. She is uh, kind of lost in her life a little bit, trying to figure out who she is, where she fits in. Her father, who's had a lifelong love of books and been a professor, is slipping away with, you know, his memory is going. And she embarks on an affair with uh, an old friend called Clément, played by the wonderful Melville Poupeau, who's been a, a longtime French actor since he was a child. And I've always liked his work. They have this wonderful chemistry, bring each other out. Um, sort of she finds a spark in her life that sort of has been missing for a long time. But at the same time, there's this, this sadness and tragedy of losing her father, trying to figure out how to sort of keep it all together. And sometimes she just loses it. It feels very emotionally truthful, honest. I thought Sidhu gives a beautiful performance and Mia Hansen loves directing is very sort of restrained where it needs to be and opens up the emotions at other times. It it just felt very, very honest, as, especially for someone who's, you know, we're, we're in the sandwich generation where we care for our parents, we care for our kids. It felt very true. One fine morning, the film. Claudia. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I think that I, I think we'll really, so many people will relate to this father, who was also wonderful, an actor, Pascal Gregory. He was this once vibrant, intellectual, you know, professor, and then he's suffering from this neurodegenerative disease, and he's becoming, you know, a different person, essentially. And you know, I think that's, you know, watching, there's a scene where they pack up his apartment, and it's just filled with books and, you know, a life. And um, you watch all that, and you feel the nostalgia, the sadness that comes with all of that, knowing that he'll be spending the rest of his days, you know, in a, in a hospital kind of setting. Um, I really like Mia Hansen Love. She did a film um, about six years ago called Things to Come, which starred Isabelle Huppert. It was um, similar. I think she's really good at capturing 
a very natural kind of quotidian life. Um, the actors feel very natural. There's a chemistry among all of them. And while, you know, uh, Leia Seydoux's character is suffering with what's going on with her father, she has the joys that come from this romance. And then her little daughter, who's adorable. And there's just this chemistry among all of them. You know, you really get the sense that there's this ensemble of actors. Um, the woman who plays her mother, Nicole Garcia, is also a really good actor. Um and it's about heartbreak. It's about, you know, romantic heartbreak and sort of the fading of a well-loved parent. But it also has these winsome moments of humor. And I really appreciated that that Paris looked unglamorous. Mm. It just looked, you know. How do you do that? I know. I know, <laughs> right? quite a trick. <laughs> it was just Parisians going about their day. Yeah. One Fine Morning, starring Léa Sadu, written and directed by Mia Hansen-Love. It's in French with English subtitles, rated R at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. The document documentary Second Chance uh, tells the story of the man who invented the Kevlar vest, Claudia. This is such a fascinating documentary. It's kind of in the vein of Errol Morris documentaries. Um, we actually showed it at Santa Barbara last March. Um, and it's fascinating and surprisingly entertaining. Uh, it's about this guy who invented the bulletproof vest. He was he had a pizzeria and he was bankrupt. This was back in 1969. And so to prove that it works, he shoots himself in the chest. He wears the vest, of course, and shoots himself in the chest point blank 192 times. He's this kind of, you know, outspoken, brash guy. He becomes sort of a celebrity among police and gun owners and um, you know, he claims that his company has saved, this body armor has saved all kinds of lives, like 3,000 lives. Um, and the film chronicles his rise and fall, and he's really a man of contradictions. He's, he, it's really compelling, I thought, compelling and fascinating, um, and it's also sort of terrifying. Um, it would be easy to, he feels almost like a character that a screenwriter would create. You, you know, it would be easy to kind of write him off as a caricature. Um, but, you know, he's so loud and desperate, and he's filled with braggadocio. Um, and but he, it's a real person. It's a real person. <laughs> and he will compel some people and he will repulse some others, but it's uh, fascinating. Second Chance is the documentary. By the way, it's directed by uh, Ramin Barani uh, Lael. Yeah, I think he does both. He compels you and repulses you, sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, he is kind of a showman. He really, uh, Richard Davis, who started this company, he loves telling stories. He's a raconteur. He, he for a long time, he was making these low-budget little promotional movies that are so kind of schlocky about how well his vests work. And he's got his own sort of code. He's like an old kind of Western hero guy. He's like, you know, I, I always tell the cops if they, if, they sh if they shoot, if they kill the guy who's, who my gun saved them from, I'll give him a free gun. You know, he has all these kind of lines like that. Um, he, Barani lets him trip himself up, which is interesting. Like he asks him, he says, was there any time when you ever weren't honest? And Richard Davis says, well, no. And then he goes on to show a time when a couple of times when he wasn't so honest, including one very important one about, uh, well, when the, when they started using um, Xylon, a new material in the vest instead of, instead of, uh, in, instead of the Kevlar, ev, instead of the Kevlar, um, I think it's called Xylon. Zy, yeah, they changed they changed the material, and then they found out that this new material um, degraded faster than the than the old material, and that actually leaded led to some lawsuits and caused some problems. And the vests didn't work as well as they did. That's one instance of his lying. Another is where he bribed a young teenager who uh, had gotten arrested on a breaking and entering thing and tried to get him to take the heat for an accidental bullet that had ricocheted during one of their one of their shooting festivals, which he had nothing to do with. And then so he was sort of caught up in this whole in this whole imbroglio thing. Um, it was it's a very good film. I thought I really like Barani's style, just sort of letting Davis talk and letting him put himself out there. I like these docs about weird people, and I thought this was particularly well done. Well-chosen subject. Uh, Richard Davis in the documentary Second Chance. It's unrated. It's at the AMC Burbank Theater and downtown Los Angeles at the Alamo Draft House. The uh, Chilean drama Blanquita stars Laura Lopez. The film is written and directed by Fernando Guzzoni. Claudia. Lovely accent with Blanquita there. No, um, <laughs> um, this is a very suspenseful psychological thriller, and it's it's based on a real case of child abuse that happened in Chile. Um, and it is you know the submission for the for the international um, Oscar, Oscar award yes, uh, from uh -huh. Chile, and it and it 
it should be. Um, it's multi-layered. It shows how the deck is stacked against the most vulnerable and underscores how the most powerful get away with things. Um, it's based on the case that happened in 2003 in Chile. Um, and it was this very wealthy businessman named Claudio Spignac. And he ran this child abuse ring. Um, he was eventually sentenced on multiple counts of sexual assault. And I think he served in prison, but he's, he uh, got out in 2013. His co-accused were not uh, imprisoned. And this is about this young woman. It really uh, completely centers on Blanquita, who's a single mother. She works at an orphanage that seems to be run by one priest. Um, and there's all these kids, and he's beleaguered because the, you know the, no one else seems to be helping him. And he's devoted to caring for these kids who've been traumatized in various ways. They're living on the streets. Um, they've been abused. And so she's really close to this one boy, and he wants to talk about the sexual abuse that he's had, but apparently this doctor determines that because of the fact that his mental health is already so shaky, if he were to testify, it would kill him. And so this frustrates to the priest, and then she comes into the fore, and we hear that, you know, having talked to this one uh, young man, Carlos has brought back um, suppressed memories, repressed memories. And then what we don't know is whether she's actually tapping into repressed memories or if she has talked to this boy and she's absorbed some of that. But, you know, the the greater issue is you want to have this guy put away who's, who's done these things in this whole ring. And I love that the director focused on the psychological experience and how she grows and evolves. And, you know, she starts off a little shaky and then she grows... Uh, defiant, and then she gets confidence, and then she get, has doubt, and and then she panics, and then she eventually finds her power to come forward. And I think he's really interested in the ways that individuals and Chilean society and the legal system respond to wrongdoing, and you know who who who's doing the leveling of the accusations, and um, you know class and all of that. I, this is a really riveting. Uh, it's it's told very suspensefully and really well. And strong performances. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. It's morally complex and, and strong performances. Yeah. Blanquita is the film. It's unrated uh, in Spanish with English subtitles, and you can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theater. The documentary IMDb Cooper tells the story of, of the hijacker who's. Disappearance, of course, remains mysterious. T.J. Regan is the director of the film, Lael. So any fan of Unsolved Mysteries will, <laughs> will know. How many episodes have been done on D.B. Cooper? <laughs> oh, so many, so many. But I've always been fascinated by the D.B. Cooper story just because he was he's the only um, hijacker who was n- never found. Um, and just a tiny little quick refresher, he, in 1971, hijacked a Northwest Ori- Orient plane, which was going to uh, from Portland to Seattle. Uh, he told the flight attendant, then called the stewardess, that there was a bomb on board. They they were convinced that he was serious. They landed it, and then uh, he took off with a skeleton crew having demanded a parachute opened the rear stairs of the plane when it was in flight and parachuted out, never to be seen again. Somewhere into the forest. Exactly, somewhere into the forest. And then some years later, maybe 10 years later, some of the money that he had been given, the ransom money, the the payout was, was found on a beach in the Pacific Northwest, and it was, you know, traced back to the the D.B. Cooper incident. And what happened was a guy named... Rodney Bonifield claims that he is the long-lost D.B. Cooper. He has kept this secret his whole life, allegedly, and uh, because he was about to go to jail on some other unrelated charge, he decides to sort of unburden himself, and he does so to a pair of bounty hunters who are then fascinated enough by his story, real-life bounty hunters, that they are fascinated enough to tell this filmmaker who uh, that's how it got to T.J. Reagan, the, the Reagan, the filmmaker. So he himself had always been fascinated by the story. It's a bit of a sort of roundabout way of doing a documentary on D.B. Cooper with interviews of this guy, Rodney Bonifield. We don't know if he really is D.B. Cooper or not. I, I, I will I will just say this. There are plenty of reenactments, and there's an, there's plenty of documentary footage, not, not enough documentary actual footage. There is some evidence that suggests that he might be 
But in many ways, the filmmaker undercuts the film's persuasiveness by the mixture of tons of reenactments and the doc stuff. I am D.B. Cooper. T.J. Regan is the uh, director. It's unrated. It's at the Cine Lounge Sunset coming up this Sunday and available on demand. And finally, we have uh, just about a minute and a half for a new documentary on the Reverend Al Sharpton. He's been called many things, as he says. Loudmouth is one. I guess he embraces Claudia. Tell us about the documentary from Josh Alexander. Yeah, well, Sharpton makes no bones about the fact that he uses the media to focus a spotlight on a very important issue, of course, racial injustice. And he's tireless. He's just, you know, seemingly indefatigable in his fight for racial justice. I was really intrigued by the way it showed the difference between the Reverend Sharpton of the 80s, you know, with Tawana Brawley, who was loudly practicing civil disobedience and really critical um, of whites as a, as a group of people. And then kind of the Sharpton that we know now, who is more of an old school liberal, who's on MSNBC. Yeah, more of a pundit. Type. Yes, more of a pundit. And it seems more mellowed. Um, and of course, he looks radically different. He lost over 100 pounds. Um, and I, I like that it chronicles that evolution, but I feel like it leaves some of the pushback against him. Uh, there aren't other people talking. He uses some archival footage, um, and I wish it had challenged maybe a little bit more of that head on. Um, you know, it, his focus is, is, is he a rabble rouser or is he an activist? Is he an opportunist? Is he, was he a trailblazer? Um, and I think, you know, maybe he was all those things, but um, he has been a polarizing figure. And it's kind of strange. I, I now looking back thinking, why was he a polarizing figure? He was saying all the right things, you know, and, and he, you know, when he was talking about George Floyd, he was saying, you know, take your foot off our necks, you know, as a, as a group of people. So I feel like maybe it was just a, a well, the Tawana Brawley time. thing did a great yes. deal of damage, I it think, did. to his it reputation. It did, and they the do time. look at that, yeah. Um, and he sits in a room and, and talks. You know, he's also a very, uh, you know, a well-appointed room. He's made money. He's, he's And he, when he, he sees looters, he kind of goes after them and says, you know, you don't need to do that. So I feel like he's a, he has evolved into a different person. I guess some people would say he's mellowed. I feel like it didn't delve deeply enough, um, unfortunately. It, it kind of covered all this in a cursory way. Um, but it's interesting, and he's it, certainly a, a you know fascinating subject to to chronicle. Oh, what a life, even to this point. Yes. Um, uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton, the documentary Loudmouth, directed by Josh Alexander. The film is unrated. You can see it in select theaters. Our Film Week critics joining us, Claudia Puig and Leo Lowenstein. Our John Horm is going to be joining us shortly uh, with conversation with actor Anna Jope. That's all coming up right here on Film Week on KPCC. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Anna Jope is a Senegalese-American actress starring in the new film Nanny. Jope plays Aisha, an undocumented immigrant from Senegal who's a single mother. She's hired by a well-to-do couple who have no interest in her personal life and who also exploit her by demanding that she work overtime without pay. Our John Horn spoke with Jope about Nanny. I want to ask you a little bit about the first conversations you had with your director about this character and about the important aspects of the story that you both felt were essential to making this film work. The first conversations I had with Nikki Atu were me trying to get clarity about Aisha's mental state and how Nikki Atu viewed Aisha's mental state. Is this a woman that's experiencing 
some form of schizophrenia? Is that a part of her past? Does she have mental illness, um, a history of mental illness, or is this really and truly a, a woman that is completely of sound mind that's experiencing these spiritual entities that are now imbuing her reality in, in her dreams? And so Nikki ought to is such a generous director in that she didn't want to give me a straightforward answer because she wanted me to come to that decision myself. But I could tell from her response to my question um, that she was definitely leaning towards the latter. And, and as an actor, your job is to just make choices. And for me, I try to make the most interesting, complex, dynamic choices for my characters. And for Aisha, that was that she is completely of sound mind, incredibly intelligent, very grounded. And instead, um, she, she's now contending with these things that are very real, despite her not being able to, for the most part, have a tangible uh, proof of them. So that it is the world that is out of balance, not her. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I think that that's so powerful, especially when you're telling a story of, of, a, of a protagonist, of a person that we don't often get to see and that we barely know, really. There are ways in which this story can be told, and many of those ways would spend too much, or let's just say a lot of time, on the family for whom Aisha works. And I suspect that was you know, perhaps a conversation that the people who are making this film or financing it had, but it feels very deliberate and intentional and I and I, I think you you and your director might have resisted this that their story is not important yes this is a family that has troubles and yes their marriage is falling apart but that's not the story right yes your thought is exactly correct it was something that we fought for especially in Akiatu she was adamant on keeping the gaze on Aisha. She was adamant about not further exploring this white family because she was constantly getting that note and constantly getting that request. Well, what about Amy's this and that? And what about the relationship? And maybe we should throw in one or two more scenes about this. And why don't we just add a piece, a dialogue for so and so? You know, she was constantly, constantly veering people away from that and these are you know these are were our our partners in this film and they're incredible people they're the ones that gave us the money to make it but you know we all kind of fall victim to this um experience of centering whiteness we're just so used to it that it takes an active effort <laughs> really to kind of veer away from that. And I'm so glad that she's so strong in who she is and her vision for this, that she stuck with that. I'm gonna ask you about a very important contributor, colleague, partner in the making of this film, and that is your cinematographer, Rena Yang. Rena, and certainly Nikyatu, is very focused on your face and what your face and what your body looks like. So let's talk first, before we talk about what hasn't happened in the past, about how that's important, not just for this character, but for film in general, that your face, the face of a black woman, is just as important as the face of a white man. I worked on a series, and after the first season aired, and I watched it, and I was really kind of disappointed in, in the ways in which I was lit, the ways in which you often couldn't see me, the ways in which I was lit poorly or in a way that was very unflattering. I came to the team during pre-production of second season and I said, look, these were my feelings about the lighting in season one. How do we remedy this? And the response I got was from our DP who said, well, when you are in a scene with your co-stars who are all white, save for Ryan, who is half white and half Japanese, I have to prioritize, or rather, I have to choose that I will like them properly over you. And, you know, how does one respond to, to something like that? Um and so me being lit improperly or unflatteringly, that continued to happen. And it's 
bummer. It's a bummer because as a black woman, I move through life most oftentimes invisible as Aisha does. And to finally get to a place where you're literally in front of the camera and literally in the homes of millions of people and still invisible is quite uh, disheartening and upsetting and frustrating. And so it was in Nanny a transformative experience to know that I could trust these women <laughs> that were creating the images that, that I deserve to have and that we as people deserve to, to have as black people, so. I think the fact that you couldn't be lit the same way that white characters could be lit says everything you need to know about Hollywood and representation in a nutshell, in that moment. Who is visible, who isn't, who gets the priority, who doesn't. Um, and it's, to me, it's really heart, it's heartbreaking, but it's true. Yeah, it is, like you said, it's a microcosm, right? Of, of the greater truth and reality of the world that we're navigating. And we all are, are just, again, victims of what it is to live in a world that centers whiteness. And that is simply the world that we live in. And we're all, again, having to actively, actively and intentionally work against that. Couldn't agree more. I want to ask you a little bit about the character in this film is somebody who comes from Senegal. Um, I think that's part of your background as well. And I'm thinking about the story of somebody who is from another place and what that means in Nanny and what it means to you, that even if your life experience doesn't mirror your character's experience, was there something about the nature of being from a different place that you were able to draw upon in this performance? Absolutely, yeah. I am from Senegal, I was born there and we moved to Houston when I was six. And certainly just the experience of being alien is something that I just know very well and that Aisha now, and when we meet her in the film, she's only been in New York for a year. She's now for the first time in her life navigating what that is to be alien in a new space and to have to tread a little more carefully. There's a really interesting, or there's a line that I love when she um, walks into the lobby after um, after work and she runs into Malik and his son and she says, they allow you to bring him here. He goes, allow me, shit happens, I brought him. And for Aisha, that moment is it's kind of like, oh, okay, the kind of audacity or boldness or confidence of, of the people around her that look like her and the, the way that the fact that they're still doing things that feel right to them and that they want to do without so much concern or worry about the ways that they might get in trouble for that. Or, um, I just, I, as an immigrant, as a person that's sometimes navigating, having to tiptoe and, you know, a space that isn't yours and a space that's alien to you. That was just a really profound line and moment to me. I want to ask you one last thing about stories involving trauma and pain. Uh, the new movie, She Said, is about Harvey Weinstein and the reporters who took him down from the New York Times. And the filmmaker very intentionally said, we're not going to see any of the assaults. The new movie about Emmett Till, very specifically, does not show anything happening to Emmett Till. You certainly see you know, the aftermath of it. And then there's other people who make different choices. And it's tricky because if we don't understand and confront the violence and damage that has been caused, it's hard to move forward. But at the same time, it's very easy to indulge in that and almost use it as a tool that is um, gratuitous. Like, where's that line for you? And how do you how do you weigh that decision? I will say Nikki Yatu is very adamant and very intentional about, and I don't want to spoil the film, but leaving it in a place of hope. Um, because in her words, she is exhausted from taking in media, taking in stories that are only um, positioning Black women or Black people in places of despair and trauma. Um, there's so much more to us than that. And I think when we talk about, she said, when we talk about filmmakers and projects like this that are um, turning the camera, turning the gaze towards something um, outside of just trauma. They're they're doing it because 
there is more to us than that. And there's more to explore than that. And I'm all with that. I'm so, I, I so agree with that. I so support that. But again, it is tricky because on the other hand, there's power in showing that image too, hopefully, and that it's hopefully blowing up empathy in people and, and hopefully moving toward people towards action. Um, Cause we've seen that happen as well in the past. And so it's really like everything else in life, a balancing act. And we are all as artists, just trying to find and strike the right balance. That's our John Horn talking with Anna Jope, star of the new film Nanny. It's at the Culver Theater in Culver City through this weekend. Coming up, John talks with director Laura Poitras about her new film, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's Film Week. We'll be back in one minute. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. The new documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, traces photographer Nan Golden's efforts to expose the Sackler family of Purdue Pharma's role in the opioid crisis. Director Laura Poitras explores Golden's life and career as well as her activist work in this conversation with our John Horn. I am going to start with a clip that comes early in this film. This happens inside the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So this being radio, we can't see what is happening. Will you describe uh, who the speaker is? It's Nan Golden, what she's doing in this moment and why this is the starting point for your movie. Right. So this is the beginning of the film. The film sort of uh, has a cold opening. You sort of dropped drops the audience in sort of in deep water. Um, Nan is organizing an action at the Metropolitan Museum at the, the Sackler Wing, the former Sackler Wing, um, protesting the Sackler name being on the, the walls of the, the Met Museum. And she and her organization called Payne um, stage launch a, a, a direct action where they've taken um, They've, they have these pill bottles and they put these sort of fake um, Oxycontin uh, prescription labels on them that talks about the death toll and the role of the Sacklers and throw it into this sort of... Um, it's like a reflecting pool. Reflecting pool, thank you. And this is the first action of, of, of pain um, that, that they did. It's the first direct action. It was front page news. And then the, the film kind of, you know, rewinds from there and we learn about Nan's creating of the, this organization to... to shame the Sacklers. If people are unfamiliar with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, I'm going to read the opening statement that Carolyn Maloney, a uh, representative from New York, made in December of 2020 at uh, the Committee on Oversight and Reform for the House of Representatives. She says, and I'm quoting her directly now, at the behest of the Sackler family, Purdue targeted high-volume prescribers to boost sales of OxyContin, ignored and worked around safeguards intended to reduce prescription opioid misuse, and promoted false narratives about their products to steer patients away from safer alternatives and deflect blame toward people struggling with addiction. And most despicably, Purdue and the Sacklers worked to deflect the blame for all that suffering away from themselves and on the very people struggling with the OxyContin addiction. So that's what Purdue and the Sacklers did or are accused of doing. How does art figure into the other part of the Sackler story? You know, it's a long story. It goes back. Um, it's sort of uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, a renowned journalist who uh, has written the book Empire of Pain and is interviewed in the film. He sort of he, he sort of charged the history of the Sackler family. And um, and it goes back before OxyContin, Arthur Sackler um, develops this kind of, you know, playbook for, for marketing prescription drugs to doctors. Um, and he does this with, the, with Valium. And, uh, and he, he actually creates a, a medical journal, but the medical journal sort of, sort of exists for the, ad, so it goes to doctors, but they, it sort of was created to sort of have these ads and the ads were, you know, targeting doctors. And he was sort of the, the first person to do that and tar directly target doctors. And then he also creates this database system where you can see who is over prescribing, 
Um, and then you, you know, sort of double down on marketing to them because you can make more money and this sort of whole kickback scheme. And then, you know, fast forward to OxyContin, which was after Arthur died, but this kind of playbook is sort of used again. And so they, they bring OxyContin to the market. They um, pressure the FDA to um, put this label on it that downplays the addictive properties of OxyContin. And then they start aggressively aggressively marketing and this is you know the early 2000s end of end of 90s early 2000s aggressively marketing this drug and downplaying its addictive properties so that it's being prescribed not for people who are post-surgery or who are dealing with you know um terminal illness right where you know you need these drugs i mean these drugs are important right for for people who are really suffering but for like minor um ailments and you know when when it becomes very clear and you know the tragedy of the story is that there was investigative journalism being done in the early 2000s that that alerted the public, the government, everyone to the abuse of and, and the destructive power of OxyContin. So you have like the, the writer Barry Meyer, who's writing for the New York Times, is saying like, this is destroying communities. Like, you know, the, the numbers are off the charts in terms of like the addiction. And, you know, and the, 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 what Purdue Pharma, the, the marketers, uh, the makers of OxyContin, which are privately owned by the Sackler family, you know, their response of that is like, how do we sell more? And, and they, they start to, you know, it's, it's, you know, the film, my film doesn't chart this whole, uh, the kind of origins of like, of OxyContin because it's been so well documented by other um, journalists and filmmakers. So if you were to see um, Dope Sick on Hulu, it kind of goes back and, and, and tells that story. Um, and, but in terms of your question about the art world, you know, the Sacklers are very um, cleverly, you know, are making their money through the sale of these drugs, but disassociate, you know, keep their names sort of out of the press or like you don't, you know, it's like Purdue Pharma is kind of the, you know, the company, but you don't, they, they keep a very low profile in the sort of how they make their money. And then there's a sort of um, white, uh, sort of art washing of, of the blood money into cultural um, spaces, museums, and also universities and medical schools. You seem to make a very specific choice not to talk about how people in this organization got addicted. Tell us about that decision because it is clearly a choice that you make. Absolutely, like there was like, we had no interest in this being a film that, you know, is about sort of, you know, like we wanted this to shift the shame, that the shame belongs on the Sacklers and the family and the boardrooms and the people who are, you know, who've allowed this, you know, d dangerous drug to be misprescribed. That's Laura Poitras, director of the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, in conversation with our John Horn. The documentary is showing at the AMC Sunset 5 through this weekend. From all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful weekend, and thanks so much for joining us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.